So, so the question you're asking at the end of your life is, whose is this? Is this your life? Is this you? And that is almost like a red thread running through my life because I have, in hindsight, I've been really asking myself this question a lot. Is this my life? This is Before It's Too Late. I'm your host, Christian Susan. Let's learn together what matters most in life. In today's episode, Social Sciences Professor and Change Management Entrepreneur Heiko Röhl is sharing with us a pivotal moment when he caused a car crash by hitting a deer on the German Autobahn. After landing his car upside down, he says, I've noticed how much I live under the illusion of control. We are discussing how the pandemic likewise is a global pivotal moment that fosters honesty about who we really are and how we can use this honesty for us as individuals, organizations, and societies to change to the better. In that context, we are hearing Heiko share his ideas for personal growth. I was impressed by his honesty, with which he describes how he is constantly trying to grow free from social expectations, why he is changing his job every five years, and that going where the fear is has always been his motto. You will also be hearing about what Heiko considers to be his legacy, something I think is very important. But listen for yourself. We are proud to have you as a guest on Before It's Too Late. Hello, Heiko. Hello, Christiane. It's great to have you on my podcast Before It's Too Late today. We have known each other for many years, haven't we? Yes. And you have always been the most impactful change agent. I have come to know you have a very profound academic background as a professor for systemic theory and the development of organizations, strategies, how to organize teams such that they can manage change. And I'm very, very happy that we get to talk together today after almost a year of the pandemic. How do you feel? How does change feel to you today? Michael. First of all, thanks for having me here. It's, it's really a great honor to, to be speaking to you and very flattering how you introduce me. The pandemic has had a tremendous impact on, on me, on society here in, in Europe, in Germany. And we could be speaking for hours about what really goes on with the society and how, how society and societies are dealing with it. For example, about the fact that women are obviously as heads of states uh, more able to handle the pandemic than, than men. That's a statistical evidence. I um, agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's focus on this one really interesting finding that we have come across, which is that the pandemic somehow does foster a certain honesty. It is almost like a magnifying glass, which really makes us see things that we probably haven't seen before. And where exactly do you feel that honesty? How does it come across? Well, if you, for example, in a team, if you would have had a crack in the, in the composition of a team culture before the pandemic, this wouldn't have uh, you know, been a problem. But the moment you have to revert to video conferencing and you have to have a minimum of trust in the team, it becomes a catastrophe. A team breaks up. This is just one of the examples. Really, the mere fact that you have to have in lockdown situations a halfway decent setup at home that you have to have a loving environment, that you have to have an understanding with your family on who does what and when, 
is simply pointing towards issues that you probably have guessed before, but you didn't know that they were there. Mm -hmm. um, who uses the video stream when and how do you plan the logistics and so on. So this is, let me just give you one example. I've, I've come across that immensely interesting point that a lot of women are telling me now that they see what their husbands are actually doing in the video conferences, they really are disappointed about the way they they really speak to their bosses, for example. <laughs> so, so one of the points that that in, in uh, what way I, I come across this top manager. She was a top manager herself. She said, "You know, I've always thought that my partner would speak to his boss in a decently, you know, dominant manner because that's what he tells me. But when I listen to the way he speaks to him, it sounds very meek and like a subordinate. And and I found that very interesting. So that would have been, never been exposed if." not the pandemic would have hit this family, this community. That's interesting. So you're saying a Corona virus as a demystifying experience totally. <laughs> within a partnership. Heiko, I would be really interested, since you are promoting change in organizations and canalizing change in organizations, I'm interested today also how you personally keep changing in order to really foster that change in organizations? Well, there's a certain interdependence between the change you are supporting, guiding, consulting in, in companies and, and the change you go through yourself. I mean, that's, that's almost a, a prerequisite for, for, for good, a good guide, right? that he's able or she's able to, to see herself and apply some reflective practice on, on her own a way of seeing the world, right? So there's a famous quote by Kurt Levine, which, which I really adore, and then from the 20s, and he said, you know, we only once get to know the organization when we start to change it. And, and that's the same, holds the same truth for people and same for me. You only get to know yourself when you start to change. Uh, you only see what you're really made of if you change things. Even if you change just one little habit, you, you'll see that. It, it renders insights into your daily life that uh, are quite amazing. Yeah, so, talking about it, the ability to perceive that, Heiko, that's so true, what you say. Do you think potential events like the pandemic or personal tragedies like loss or accidents or whatever are required to really change? Or do you think change is also possible That is, this is probably the most profound question you could ever ask to anybody who is concerned with transformation and, and, and change. I think personal crises are accelerating change. I think personal crises are catalyzing transformation and change, but they don't have to necessarily be good teachers. So a crisis is, is, is not necessarily a good teacher because crisis means that you start to adapt to the new situation. In, in many cases. So if you experience a crisis as an organization or as a person, there's two ways to deal with that. One is to ask yourself, how can I, can I adapt to the new situation? The second is, and that's what you're pointing towards, is to ask the question, what's that crisis really mean? And why does it hit me so hard? And that's the second, the second question is the one which makes crisis a good teacher, but you have to be able, you have to be reflective enough to ask that question. Let me give you an example for that. I had a car crash 
with my wife about six months ago. Wow. And it turns out that because of Corona on the German Autobahn, there were deer everywhere. And I was oh hitting a deer and I was 140 kilometers per hour. Now I have a big car and I try to keep it on track, but it turned over. So we really opened our eyes uh, upside down. Oh there were a few cars God. in the road, on the road because of, uh, because of Corona, a few cars on the road. And we managed to get out of the car and uh, we were not hurt at all. I had a, a bleeding wound on my forehead, but everything else was fine. So oh we, we still got to the hospital and had the whole kind of checkups. And that's an amazing thought next morning when you wake up and, and you ask yourself why, what happened? You, you know that uh, the human brain is able to kind of mitigate that experience a bit and make you feel like you're in a bubble on that evening. It's called shock and trauma that you go through. In a it is trauma indeed. And then next morning you, you, you are realizing, well, I could have been dead. I could have been uh, gone. In the blink of an eye. Yes. In the blink of an eye, exactly. Now, we were having a nice conversation, and suddenly, it was dark, it was 10 o'clock at night, and suddenly everything turned from one safe and warm and beautiful conversation situation in my car mm -hmm. to a very situation standing on the roadside and bleeding. And, and what I, did that do with you? Exactly. And that's the point I want to, want, want to come towards, which is one thing is to experience that. And my wife uh, really was able to deal with that, cope with that in a beautiful way. Right? We were talking about this for the whole day because we know that trauma, wh while it's happening or shortly before, after it's happening, it's good if you're able to speak about it. So we really spoke about the detail of what we saw and what we experienced. For example, she said, I saw a lot of snow in the car. I felt like snow was falling. Mm -hmm. And I said, I know what you talk about. I think it was the kind of a, the little um, shards from the, from the windscreen that was broken. And it was really amazing. So we had a, had a deep conversation on that. And she was fine with that. I wasn't. So over the period of about four weeks, I was deeply unsettled. I was mm -hmm. really unsettled. And Interesting. It's really, it was really interesting. I was asking myself, and I was really meditating, and I was asking myself, why does it unsettle me so much? And we also discussed that, and she said, it's probably because you were driving and you had this loss of control. And I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself a total con a control freak, but amazingly enough, this car crash showed me I am a control freak in a certain way. And I couldn't even let go of this experience because I was asking myself, what if... I would have gone two minutes later or I would have, uh, you know, uh, been able to avoid the deer and steered around it, which was impossible because it was 10 meters. It jumped to right on my, well, my windscreen, right? So I, my mind couldn't let go of it. And that was quite, 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 quite exciting to then understand that um, this car crash was teaching me that, that I, I really am still at the end of the day, like probably everybody, under the illusion, I live under the illusion of control every day. Yes, absolutely universal for all of us. And I mm, think also mm. the corona pandemic shows us now that we never really have control, not a single day. True. And yeah. So can you say already, I mean, this is six months only, how you might use this to repurpose your purpose or use this even to have a different view on life in general? 
Um, let me see if I can turn that question around a bit and tell you a bit about my own ideas about personal growth and, and where I think that's probably very, very personal, but how I con con my, my concept of personal growth is, yes. About three years ago, I was concerned with palliative care givers and interviews they were taking with people dying. And it's quite interesting that if you look at the communalities globally of the last thoughts of people, the last questions that people have before they die, it's quite interesting because you find that it's none of the things that we would consider to be important when we live our lives. Mm, so when we true. live our lives, we think, have we been good fathers or do I have sufficient money or do I live in a good city? Or these questions, we think they are profound. What about my friends? I think the last, I think it came out, the last um, question that universal people are asking themselves is something like, has this been my life? Have I lived my life? Yes. The, the last question that you're asking is the question of social expectations. Have I lived my life? Or have I lived a life that has been distorted by, by social uh, expectations, right? So, mm -hmm. so is, is, has it been my life or the life that my mother wanted me to live or my father wanted me to live? Or has it been the life that my kids would expect me to be as a father? So, so the question you're asking at the end of your life is, whose is this? Is this your life? Is this you? And that is almost like a red thread running through my life because I have, in hindsight, I, I've been really asking myself this question a lot. Is this my life? And I've been changing my job every five years on the day because I made a promise to myself that I never stay in the job longer than five years because I think after five years, you start to believe your own bullshit. You start to believe your own story. You become victim of your own narrative in a job situation, right? So, so I, it, it dawned on me when I was employed at Daimler Chrysler in, in Palo Alto and here in Berlin, and we had a, a really interesting job. It was a foresight unit, futurizing unit of, um, you know, close to the strategy unit of Daimler and it was a new economy. And, you know, and it, it, after two or three years being employed there, people were in my private context were saying, Heiko, who's that? Or is, this, is this the guy who works for Daimler? And I started to, to see that that identity of the guy who works for Daimler started to, to become something big in my life. And as a matter of fact, I don't really like cars. So it almost superimposed a social expectation on me that then after five years, I, I really shed, I really let that, I really shed that skin. And, and, and for me, this question is, is really, I think, if you want to have a decently working answer on that last question you're asking, when you're you know, moving on, you need to ask yourself, I wouldn't say continuously, but every now and then, is this my life? Let me take this one step further. If your partner sees you as somebody that starts to become a stranger to yourself, if your partner, in the eyes of your partner, you are becoming somebody you are not, it's time to question that partnership. If in your job, you start to become somebody you're probably not, it's time to question that because 
we do all fall into these very seducing roles. They give us social status. They give us visibility, right? And these roles sometimes are bigger than our own ability to ask ourselves, is this me? And that's why I think this reflective exercise is so important. Every now and then asking yourself, is the way I'm being seen by my friends, is the way I'm being seen by, well, my kids, by my wife, by my employer, by my customers, is this who I am? And how much does that have to do with me? And that question is a very tough question. It's very, very tough. Right. Heiko, I'm so glad and touched by this deep answer. That's amazing. And that is so spot on. In When I worked for 10 years in end-of-life care and also um, listened to the reflections of the dying, I even made a book out of that, as you know. I know, great book. I had exactly the same experience. They, the dying are really the best teachers for life. And it's exactly that. Do I have the courage to lead a truthful life to myself? Do I have the courage to be myself? And you wrote quite a few books on just that, how we need to change, to keep changing personally before we even change our organizations or at our workplace. We need to change personally first into exactly that person who we truly are and that is a very tough process but i think it's the most worthy and the most powerful purpose you can even determine in your life to to go that to take that journey of personal transformation right that's the journey i am on too and um i think we it's an ever ongoing journey it never really stops I would really be interested, Heiko, from these findings and these insights that are so powerful. Have you ever thought about a legacy you want to leave behind before it's too late? That's actually why I gave this podcast this title, <laughs> because you also experienced that life can be over in a blink of an eye, as you told us. What legacy do you want to leave behind, Heiko, other than money? Well, I'm not, sure. I'm not really sure if, if uh, there's a lot of, lot of money left behind when I'm, when I'm gone. Um, well, let me just add on to that. That journey you talk about is a, is a tough one is a, is a, because truthfulness is not, it's not an easy path. Um, no, it takes a lot of courage. Uh, courage because we all are, are uh, living a life and, and that is something I also want to want to point out, living a life that is full of expectations. And when we are able to live up to these expectations, we, we do um, get feedback that tells us you're part of a decent, uh, you're part of a decent member of society, if you want. So, mm -hmm. so social expectations have never been as elaborate, as powerful as they are today because of the social media. So the question that arises in any youth, for example, is who am I, apart from all the Instagram identities I'm putting up? And that question is, is it's not an easy answer. For, for youth, for an adolescent, it's very difficult to answer, right? Because it's, it's almost I shaded. It's by never more ch challenging than now. I, I so agree, right? So 
when you're asking me about my my own what I want to leave behind, um, certainly the idea that we we are only able to fulfill our our purpose and our our duty here if we stay reflective and reflectiveness the ability to ask yourself from a second perspective to look at yourself in the mirror by the way that michael jackson song is is not a joke the man in the mirror is one of the most philosophical sound uh, lyrics uh, song lyrics that that, uh, that that i've ever seen right it starts with the man in the mirror and that reflectiveness is really key. But what kind of reflectiveness do we need on the, you know, on our endeavor to, to discover truthfulness? It has a lot to do with going where it is uncomfortable. So one of my mottos has always been go where the fear is. Go where the fear is. Go where you feel uncomfortable. Because if you, if you avoid what is uncomfortable, you will never grow. That, and how do you do that exactly, Heiko? Oh, I Go went where the fear is. Uh, in, in, in 2001, uh, I decided, uh, got a job offer to go to South Africa and uh, support the development of the Nelson Mandela Foundation for five years. And, and, um, and we, um, we did um, go there and I lived in Johannesburg uh, for five years. And it's been, at that time, the murder capital of the world. It's a very, very dangerous city. It's been a very dangerous city. And you mark my word, uh, was I fearful? Yes. And um, well, if, if I would have asked my friends, would you, would you want to live in Johannesburg for five years? And most people would say, why, why should I? Uh, there's no job that you could offer me that I would do this because it's, it's as a matter of fact, it's a dangerous city, right? Mm. Yes, you can find your own uh, spaces there and you can make it safe. But, but um, I think it's been a good work experience of my life, my job of my life my life in South Africa so because I've met with uh, many very interesting fascinating personalities so uh, what exactly did you need to overcome um, I had to overcome my overthinking this uh, I had to overcome not trusting the security guys we had there who said you know if you do this and that it's going to be okay I had to overcome my my waking up at night before we before we went there right uh, and my 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 paranoia about this about this city, and once I was there and I got to understand how everything works, it was fine. But that's why I say, go where the fear is, right? If you if you're afraid of certain contexts and and work situations, and if you're afraid of public speaking, go there, right? I'm a public speaker with a thousand, two thousand people, five thousand people. I, I speak publicly. When I was studying. I, I didn't even dare to raise my hand and say and, and contribute to the debate because I hated speaking in public, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot yes. of people are like that. And, and that's why I say, yes, I hated speaking in public, but no, I was not um, dwelling on that, you know. So I don't want to portray myself as somebody who constantly challenges himself. But if I'm afraid of something, it, it tells me something. Let's put it like that. Yeah, and Heiko, that's so interesting, and you are truly a great example how to use crisis to transform and how to use fear to transform, as you just laid out for us. Um, I would also like to talk with you about the cost if you don't do that. 
Who do you think you would have been had you not faced your fears? Now that's only speculation, you know. We, we go back to that first question you were asking, is crisis a good teacher? And I would say crisis is a good teacher when you're able to reflect on it in an appropriate way. Crisis is not a good teacher when you start to adapt to it and, and when, you're, when you're kind of not learning from it. And when crisis comes, a lot of companies are starting to adapt to it rather than learning from it. And, same and that's what Darwin from. suggested. Exactly. Interesting. What's interesting is um, Darwin, Darwin is, is um, misunderstood, has been misunderstood by many, especially in management theory, because Darwinism in management theory, a lot of people think it has to do with the strongest to survive. But what Darwin really wrote is, those who are adaptable to change. So yes. adaptability for him is the key to survival. Now, what does adaptability mean? Does it mean you adapt your behavior or does it go deeper and you start to adapt your whole basis, your whole basic assumptions about how the world works? And that makes the big difference. So we don't know what Darwin meant when he said adaptability. He talked about environmental factors. But in social sciences, that question of the depth of reflection is very interesting. So I could ask myself, how should I change my behavior in order to adapt on a superficial level? But I could also ask myself on the deepest level, what does that really mean for who I think I am? And that's mm -hmm. the second, you know, the second uh, path we talked about about 20, half, half an hour ago. Mm -hmm. so, so, so I don't know who I would have been if I wouldn't have done that. I certainly, when I was studying, was pretty depressive. I was studying in a very grim 30,000-student mass university here in Berlin. At that time, I was only studying psychology uh, in a master context. And I, I don't know who I would have been. I, I, I don't know. I, and I, don't, I, you know, I would love to meet that person. And you know what? I, I have an idea about the person. I, I could imagine that person. And that's the mo mo most important point. You have to imagine the person that 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 you would have been if you wouldn't have taken the chance see here you talk about the conjunctives and exactly. that's exactly what we rather should try to eliminate let, let me let me give you one practical example when i was I, when i got actually it was a fax on which that job offer was for south africa and and it said we're looking for a resident Uh, strategy consultant who's placed by the German government in the Nelson Mandela Foundation to foster organizational development there and to fight HIV AIDS and to, to enable the Nelson Mandela Foundation to be, to be able to fight HIV AIDS, right? And when I got that offer, I was still employed. I, you know, my wife was, you know, had a great contract in a, in a hospital here. So, so it was, everything was really settled. And you know what made us say yes? It was that question of what would happen if we say no. Mm -hmm. We would look back when we're 70 and say, you remember that job offer? What would have happened if we would have done that? And that made me say yes. Because I would never want to look back and say, you know what, maybe this would have been a great thing. And it was a great thing. My kids are born in Johannesburg. You know, they, they have uh, their true South Africans still by heart. <laughs> so in a very interesting mm. way, this has been part of our biography, family biography. But that question is really, so the question you're asking, who would you have been if you wouldn't have done it? 
is something that really lingers with me all the time. What would you recommend the young people who has a more challenging time than the generations before in terms of being truthful to oneself? Can you give some um, concrete advice how they could get a deeper understanding on how to stay in their own lane? Just a footnote uh, on this point, because I wish we would have educational systems who would ask that same question that you're asking now and who would see that identity formation is something that needs to be supported and guided. Let me give you an example for that. When you're in school and you're 14, that culture in your class or wherever you are in your, in your 14, that group culture that you have is something that you're part of and it guides you, but you're not reflecting on it. So why is a certain person bossy? Who are you in this game? Why is that somebody who's gossiping all the time? Who are the backstabbers? Why is somebody forgiving and the others not? These questions. And how? why is it important to be forgiving, to be learning, to be reflective? These questions, they're very relevant and they're not taught in school, right? And And a lot of people have to go a very hard, a long and hard road to, to, to very late in their life discover that these questions are really important because they have mm -hmm. to do with their own ability to take on roles, reflect them and, and, you know, control, design their own roles that they, that they, that they take on consciously. So what would be the recommendation? Well, it's certainly hundreds and thousands of, of, options. One would be to, first of all, uh, you know, encourage youth to give feedback in a positive way to each other and to receive feedback in a positive way. As I said, there's hundreds of options. But the whole idea of uh, a reflective social practice in school, in these, it would really, it would, if we would invest more there, At this point, we would really get get a huge return on that in in in, in lower suicide rates and and uh, uh, addictions. And uh, I'm I'm a hundred percent sure about that because you would be installing a a mechanism which would prevent youth from self destructive reflection and behavior. And that, that, that is something that we don't focus on. We let have the, you know, the bossy guy in the classroom, we let them have their way. When I'm, when I'm hearing stories about schools, you know, I'm very much in, in engage also in dialogue projects in, uh, in communities. And when I sometimes see that nobody does anything when there's a bully in the classroom and there's about 20 people suffering from that and the teacher suffers from that for just one hour, And he doesn't get the bully doesn't get feedback. Then, then I'm really asking myself, why have we not put enough emphasis on this? Yeah, that is such a powerful thought, Heiko. And that's something we, as a society, especially in the educa educational organizations like schools and colleges, should really, really try to be acting on. And I hope you keep pushing for that, Michael. I will. For these social I will. mechanisms. I will. 
that really, really enable us as human beings to not only cope with the complexity around us, but also to be really able to, on an ongoing basis, develop a life that is true to ourselves, as we discussed uh, throughout our entire half hour here, Heiko. That is so powerful. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Christiana. Thank and you. And my last question would be, Heiko, on a scale from one to ten, how fulfilled do you feel your life to be right now? It's a nine. That's a nine point five because of the beautiful people I meet and the beautiful people I'm I'm allowed to be with. The beauty of insight. That's definitely what I took from our conversation, Heiko. Thank you so much for sharing these deep and substantial thoughts with us on Before It's Too Late. Thank you, Christiane. Thank you for having me here. I really enjoyed this profound conversation, and I hope you did too. For more episodes of Before It's Too Late, make sure to subscribe. If this episode spoke to you, Consider sharing it with a friend or loved one you think might benefit from it. Thank you for listening.